This is an audio sermon recorded at the Church of Christ at Johnson Mill in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 3801 Johnson Mill Boulevard. You know, Jesus Christ, as we think about who he was, the kind of man that he was, he was, he was an amazing person. He was the one true king. He is the Lord of lords. He is the creator of all things. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, as we know that the scriptures describe to us all these things about Jesus and so much more that we could say about him. He was the greatest man to have ever walked in this and live in this world. And while he was here on earth, he had many displays of astonishing knowledge, astonishing power, astonishing wisdom and authority from God that never had any person ever uh, been able to, to hold or to uh, possess before or and never had any person seen anything like this. Jesus was a man unlike anyone else. As an infant, in Luke chapter 2, verses 29 through 33, we read of this instance where Mary and Joseph are taking the child Jesus to the temple to offer sacrifices that were required of the law uh, for, for newborn uh, male children. And they were, taking the, the, uh, they were taking him to the temple. And there they encounter a man named Simeon. Now, Simeon was a, a man of Israel. And he had, it had been revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen with his own eyes the, the Lord's Christ. The Holy Spirit had revealed that to him. And so he went to the temple and was waiting there. And he sees Mary and Joseph come in and enter in. And he takes the child Jesus into his arms. And he says these words. He says, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him as an infant, causing people to marvel at the words that were spoken about him. On the Sermon of the Mount, as he grew up and began his ministry on the Sermon of the Mount, he delivered a sermon that, that was intended to uh, give many deep truths about the failures of, of the Israelites on, on their keeping, or their failure of the keeping of the Mo law of Moses, rather. And he raised the moral standard that they had been accustomed to uh, and the doctrines and the traditions that they had created for themselves and the standards that they had known. He elevated that into Matthew 7, verse 28 through 29. When he comes to an end of this Sermon on the Mount, it says, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. There had been no teacher like Jesus ever before. The scribes and the, and the other teachers of the law, they did not speak with authority. But Jesus is the originator of the law. He is the originator of the word of God. He is the word of God in the flesh. And so he was, uh, he was uh, very astonishing as a teacher because he spoke as one having authority. Because he is the one that created the law and he issues the law. Uh, but he still astonished people with his teachings with his great power that he displayed, going around healing many people and, and, and delivering them from their maladies. Uh, people were astonished and wondered at these things. They marveled at, at the great power of Jesus. In Matthew 15, 30-31, it says, Great multitudes came to him, having with him those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them, insomuch that the multitude wondered. And when they saw the dumb... Uh, when they saw the dumb to speak, and the maimed to behold, and the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. People were astonished at the power of Jesus. They, were, they marveled at this man, that he could command the physical elements of this world in such a way as to heal the human body in an instant. And people would bring their sick to him, and he, they would be healed in the moment, right before their eyes. What a thing to have been able to behold. 
And not only could he forgive people, or not only could he heal people of their, of their diseases and their ailments and their physical uh, problems, he could forgive them of their spiritual problems. He could heal their spiritual problems. He could forgive people's sins. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 5 through 8, he poses this question to the unbelieving Jews that were, that were questioning and challenging his authority. What right do you have to tell this man that his sins are forgiven? And so Jesus poses this challenge and this question to him. He says, what is easier to say? Thy sins be forgiven thee, or arise and walk? It's a rhetorical question. Either of those are impossible for any, any human man to say. But God is the one that can answer both of those. And nothing is impossible for God, it says. The scripture tell us. And he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he saith to the sick of the palsy, Arise and walk, and take up thy bed, and go into thine house. And he arose, and he departed into his house. When the multitude saw it, they marveled, and glorified God, which had given such power to men. Jesus Christ was a man who had authority to forgive people of their sins. And people marveled at such great authority and great power. On his trial, when he was falsely accused and standing before Pilate, uh, Pilate no doubt saw his share of criminals that, that would plead and beg for their life against accusations that were brought for them, and especially if there were false accusations. No doubt he saw people very animated and very uh, argumentative and, and pleading and begging for their lives. Yet when Jesus stood before him, being falsely accused of all of these things that the priests and the elders of the Jews had brought against him, his reaction was enough to warrant awe from Pilate. In Matthew 27, beginning in verse 11, it says, And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Thou sayest. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said unto him, Hearest not thou how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him, To never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Jesus astonished this man, and, and he caused great awe from Pilate that an innocent man would keep silence in such a way, being falsely accused. Of course, Jesus knew what his purpose was. He knew the reasons that he had to die. And, and as the story goes on, Jesus is brutally scourged by Pilate and the Romans, and, he, and then he's crucified. And for many, this was the story, or this was the end, rather, of the story of Jesus. Yet, thankfully, that was not the end of the story because Jesus was physically raised from the dead after three days, and he appears to his disciples. And this was enough to cause them to marvel. In Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 39, he appears physically to his disciples and he says, Behold my hands and my feet and see that it is I myself. And see, handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed to them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? He's proving to them that he is physically raised from the dead and they marveled at this. Jesus caused many people to marvel because of his great, his great power. And no doubt, as we read these accounts, it's no surprise to us that human beings, mere human beings, could be in awe of such a man like Jesus. His power, his purpose, his authority, his resurrection. And, and so that's not as much of a surprise to us. But you know what is a surprise to us? And I think is a surprise and would be a surprise to many of us is that the scripture gives us two occasions on which this great man, Jesus, for all the power and glory and authority that he displayed, all the, all the, the wonder that he caused people to have, there's two occasions that the scriptures show us where Jesus himself marveled at something that humans did. 
And I think those are two interesting things that we ought to know. If it was enough to cause Jesus to marvel, I think we should examine those and see what it is that caused Jesus to have such, such an experience witnessing and watching the, the, the actions or, or the reactions of, of human beings. <clears throat> because I think it will teach us something. The first account that we encounter of, uh, of this uh, uh, telling of Jesus marveling is at Nazareth. Jesus was a man of Galilee, and this was his hometown. This is where he was raised. This is where he was brought up. He comes into Nazareth. And he goes in there on the synagogue at Nazareth, and he reads a prophecy about himself to the people. Now, this is a very, very significant moment, very historical moment for the Jews and for the world. And here comes Jesus into his hometown of Nazareth. And it says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, there in Luke chapter 4, verse, beginning in verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered to him the book of the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah, as the Greek uh, says. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath appointed, uh, anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Jesus was reading a very specific prophecy about his coming from the book of Isaiah, as, as we read here. He was the one that the prophet was writing about. Everything that the Jews had been waiting for, for generation after generation after generation, since these promises had been made of this coming Savior that would deliver them from their foes, that would deliver them from the great enemy, that would vanquish uh, these enemies and bring peace to the land and establish a rule and, and bring peace and joy and glory to them and safety. Everything that they had been waiting for was standing right in front of them, reading to them the law of, of, of God, reading to them this prophecy, and he says, this day is this uh, scripture fulfilled in your ears. Can you imagine what kind of blessing that would have been to have been in that audience, to see Jesus for yourself and to hear his voice, read those words and confirm, it's me. I am the one that the prophet is writing about. You would think that the Jews that were sitting in that audience would be moved to marvel at this man. And they did somewhat. They were astonished a bit. We find the parallel telling in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6 verse 2 it says, And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, from whence has this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? You see, they were astonished at his teaching, but they immediately began to question his authority. Where did this guy get this stuff? Why does he have such wisdom? And what, what, what uh, wisdom is this that's given to him, that even such mighty works are done by his hands? These weren't genuine questions. These weren't, this wasn't genuine uh, all of this man. These were questions to question his authority, challenge his authority, and to belittle him. They continue asking questions. In Luke chapter 4, 22, it says, And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? 
Remember, this is his hometown. This is where he grew up. These people knew his family. In fact, they tell him so. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, it says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. These Jews from Jesus' own hometown were amazed at his teaching, yet they immediately began to ask these questions, not out of genuine curiosity, but out of contempt. They were offended at Jesus. They were astonished, or I'm sorry, they were questioning, rather, uh, his authority. Where did this man get these things from? What wisdom is given to him? And notice how they belittle him. Isn't this the carpenter? This guy's just a carpenter. Why is he saying this stuff? Who does he think he is? So who was this? Who was this that was standing before them? You know, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. And in verse 14 it says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The writer says, The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Word of God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. He is no ordinary man. And this is God in the flesh standing before them, reading these things, and they say, isn't he just the carpenter? We know his family. He's nothing. They're just this poor family from Nazareth. He's not anything special. He's not all that great. But he is. He is God in the flesh. He is the Word of God in the flesh. So then he continues to try to, to help them understand somewhat and also uh, to rebuke them. This, the, this, he gives them two examples, and I believe this was designed uh, for, for something very specific. But in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 24, and he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, or Elijah, uh, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman who was a widow. The Zidonians were idol-worshipping idol Gentiles, a Phoenician people that were enemies of the people of God. And Jesus says there were a bunch of widows in the land of Israel. There was a lot of Israelite widows, but God didn't send Elijah to any of those but to a Gentile woman. He gives him another example. Many lepers there were in Israel in the times of Eliseus or Elisha the prophet, and uh, none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Syria, another enemy of God's people. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. These two examples of these two great prophets of Israel that they, they, it shows that they did not help the Israelites in those two instances, but instead they went and helped the Gentile people, enemies of God's people. And not only was this a prophecy, th this was intended to show them how salvation was a, a much greater picture than they were realizing. They were so concerned about being the, from the lineage of, of Abraham, and they found safety in their, in their physical descendancy, but none of that mattered, and Jesus was coming to, to change all of that. And it was always God's plan to include the Gentile people 
the non-Jewish people in the plan of salvation. Uh, and so not only was this prophecy about the Gentiles being included in God's salvation, because it foreshadows that, it was a clear rebuke against these hateful Nazarenes. The reason those prophets left and went to these other towns is because the Israelites were unbelieving and hard-hearted. And we can see that they clearly understood the rebuke that was intended in the way that they reacted. They heard these things. They were filled with wrath. Not only were they filled with wrath because this man is saying that the Gentiles are going to have salvation. And now he's saying that they're the unbelieving people in this scenario. So they, they understood very clearly what this design, what these examples were designed to do. And he accomplished his purpose and, re, and convicted them. Yet they weren't humbled. They were angry. And they rose up. And, and, and look at this, the way they reacted. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God in the flesh, standing before them, preaching the good news to them, saying, the time is now, I am the one, I am the king, I am the anointed one, the light to all the world. He has finally come, and instead of respecting him, they become so angry that they want to throw him off a cliff. They want to kill him. They want to take him to the edge of the city and throw him off the hill. What a terrible reaction. That's astonishing. And in fact, Jesus found it so as well. He says there he could do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus Christ, the man that we read about, these great powerful miracles and this great wisdom and this great authority from God, causing so many people to marvel, yet something that caused him to marvel was a lack of faith from people. He marveled at their unbelief. <clears throat> the second instance, <clears throat> as he continues his ministry, he begins to travel around, and he goes from city to city, teaching these great truths to people, preaching the message of the kingdom. And he comes to a city, uh, Capernaum, which is not far from, from there at Nazareth, um, and actually where he... he spent quite a bit of time and was somewhat of his headquarters during his, his ministry. Uh, he spent a lot of time there anyway. Uh, he goes down in there into Capernaum and, and no doubt his faith or, or, or the fame of him had gone abroad because of all the miracles that he had done. People knew who this man was and they heard about these wonderful things that he had done. And he comes to this city, Capernaum, and here we find this story of, this, of a Roman centurion. Luke chapter 7 verse 2. It says, And a centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Note this man, a Roman centurion. He is a Roman military leader. He is a non-Jew he sends elders of the Jews to plead on his behalf to Christ to have him come and heal his servant. Or not even come, he, yeah, he, he says, come and heal the servant, rather. And the Jews instantly plead the cause of the centurion, saying, he is a good man. He loves the Jews. He loves our nation. He even built us a synagogue. This sounds like a pretty amazing man. Sounds like a good man. How many Roman centurions would even care about a servant? How many Roman centurions would even care about the Jewish people? 
This is a nation that the Romans had conquered, and the, the Jews were subject to them. And he cares so much for them. And, and how many Roman centurions would care to spend their own money and their own time to build a synagogue for these people who were subordinate to the Romans? The picture we're getting of this centurion shows us he was selfless, he was concerned with other people's needs. He's not, he's not even sending these Jews and begging Jesus to, to, to do something for him. He's begging so that this can be done on, on behalf of his servant because his servant was sick. And he cared about this servant, and he knows that Jesus is the only one that can help him. It goes on there in verse 6, it says, And Jesus went with him. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man under authority, set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say to one, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. <laughs> what, what an incredible statement from this man in an account of this centurion. Jesus agrees he's going to go to this man's house and to heal this servant, but the centurion, when Jesus is close to the house, sends a whole other group of people, ambassadors on his behalf, to go and speak to Jesus and say, don't, don't trouble yourself with coming into my house. This centurion wanted to Jesus, he wanted, if he wanted to heal, rather, this servant so badly, why, why would he try to keep Jesus from coming to his house? Why would he stop him when he's that close and say, no, don't, don't trouble yourself in the coming? Well, the answer is given to us there in that verse because he thought he was unworthy for Christ to come into his home. And he even especially thought that he was unworthy to go himself in person to Christ. What humility. And not only this, he, he clearly understands Christ's power. He clearly understands Christ's authority better than many of the Jews did, especially the people of Nazareth. He understood the relationship between authority and obedience. And he knew and had no doubt that if Jesus would just give the commandment, it would happen. It would be so. This is impressive for a man that only heard about Jesus. Maybe he heard about him from all the miracles that, went, that he went around doing. He did miracles there in Capernaum and, and around about and other, other cities. Maybe he heard about this great man, this great anointed one that was coming to be a light of the Gentiles. As Simeon said, as he held Jesus in his arms, he's coming to be a light of the Gentiles. Maybe he heard about that from the Jews that he loved so much and cared so much for and built the synagogue for. And to see this man's action and this man's conduct and this man's faith, Matthew chapter 8, the parallel account, tells us this, beginning in verse 10. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled. And he said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out unto outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in that selfsame hour. Just like the centurion knew what happened. 
Notice what Jesus says here. He marvels at the faith of this Gentile Roman soldier, and he compares it to the faithlessness of the Jews. I haven't found so great faith. I haven't found an Israelite who is as faithful as this man, this Roman soldier. And he, again, hints at this, this prophecy. There's a, greater, there's a greater story being told here. Uh, and, and this is of the Gentiles coming in and being part of the fold and, and God reconciling all people unto himself and this great king becoming ruler over all these people. He says, many shall come from the east and the west, other nations that were non-Jewish. He says, many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the children of the kingdom, the Jews themselves, who were the heirs of this, this kingdom, they will be cast out into outer darkness. I just want to make sure to point that out because that is a... a a very important thing for us to understand in the development of the gospel story as Jesus goes out and, and preaches the gospel. The Gentiles were always intended to be a part of the blessings of, of, of God and to be a part of the kingdom. But he, he marvels at the faith of this man, and what a contrast this gives us between the unbelieving Jews at Nazareth, the children of Israel, the heirs of the promise, the chosen people, and a Gentile man. So what can we learn as we read about these two accounts that cause Jesus, the creator of the world, to marvel at, at the actions and attitude of human beings? What can we learn from this? I think there are several things that the Roman centurion teaches us that are very important for us to consider for our lives. First of all, realize our own unworthiness. You know, the Nazarene Jews hated Christ so much they wanted to throw him off a cliff because they thought he was not worthy enough to be their Messiah. He was not what they expected at all. They expected this great political figure, this great mighty king that would come and have this great military force, and he was nothing of what they expected. And he was not worthy. He was just some poor carpenter. Isn't, isn't this the carpenter? What wisdom is this which is given to him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? They didn't think he was good enough to be their Messiah, but the centurion recognized that he was the one that wasn't good enough for Christ. He was the one that wasn't worthy for Christ to come to him, nor for him to be able to go to Christ. <clears throat> the ugly truth is that none of us are worthy, and we ought to realize that. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, We are all as un unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. We're so easily carried away by our sins. We're so easily taken off course like a helpless leaf flying in the wind. And he says all of, our, all of our righteousness, the best parts of us are like filthy rags in the sight of God. We're all unclean sinners stained with sin. We're all unworthy and incapable of fixing ourselves. Jeremiah 2.22 For though I wash thee with nitre, that's acid, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord. We couldn't wash away our sins even if we try to wash and bathe in acid and much soap. There's no amount of soap. There's no amount of washing of ourselves that we could ever do to take away our own sins. Truly, we're not worthy to go to Him. We're not even worthy as, as human beings for Him to come to us. Yet He did. We should realize the great gift that we have in Christ. He is the only one that could help us, and He willingly offered His help and His mercy to us. Titus chapter 3, verse 7, or 
Titus chapter 3, verse 3. And we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, so we read there in Isaiah that we're, it's like filthy rags. But according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What a beautiful story that encapsulates in that, in that passage. He is the only reason the only reason that we as sinners can be made clean and be renewed to have the hope of in inheriting this kingdom and to, and to have the, the hope of sitting in the kingdom with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the many other faithful forebears that have gone on before. He's the only one and the only reason that we have this hope, this washing of regeneration that can take place if we submit ourselves to Him and His commandments. And that should cause us to have humility, just like the Roman centurion. You know, the Nazarene Jews, they didn't have a humble spirit as they heard Christ. Instead, they thought to humble Christ. They wanted to bring him low. And he says, isn't this just the carpenter? On the other hand, we see the Roman military leader begging for help from a citizen of a nation that they had conquered, lowering himself to such a degree. And he says, and again, what we saw in the passage, not in person because he thought he wasn't worthy to come to Christ. We need to have humility. This is who God is. This is the true nature of God. It says in Isaiah 57, 15, Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. What a, a beautiful thing that the Scripture reveals to us about the true nature of God. He is the one that inhabits eternity, the high and the holy place, but He also dwells with those who are low and those who are humble in heart and of a contrite spirit. Because humility is what God truly values. Psalm 51, 16-17, it says, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Humility on our part is what God truly values above any sacrifice we could ever think to offer God. We have another contrasting example that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees with. They were self-righteous and they thought they were good enough. They thought everybody else wasn't good enough. They were looking at Jesus going, doesn't he know who these unrighteous people are that are touching him? And he gives them this example in Luke 18, beginning of verse 10. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a publican. Publicans were tax collectors. They were despised by the people. The Pharisees stood and prayed, the, and the Pharisees were religious leaders, supposed to be the, you know, the high authorities of the law-keeping and all these things, supposed to be very religious men. He says, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners and unjust and adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Look at how much this guy is, 
is blowing his own horn. He's tooting his own horn. Look at how great I am. God, I'm thankful that I'm so good. I'm so thankful that I'm not like these other people, these other terrible sinners. And look at all these good things that I do. I'm giving my money. I'm giving my money to you. I'm giving you everything, you know, of, of that I, of that I, from what I possess. And the publican, standing far off, standing far off, he would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself will be abased, and he that humbles himself will be exalted. Another contrast here, and I think that's very fitting as we compare these Nazarene Jews to the Roman centurion. These Nazarene Jews thought that Jesus wasn't good enough, but it, the Roman centurion had the right attitude, and he knew that he wasn't good enough. And he stood far off from Jesus and wouldn't so much as dare to go to Jesus in person. It's the kind of humility we ought to have when we approach God. We're unworthy sinners, and we are incapable of helping ourselves, and we're not even worthy to approach God. But we ought to have the type of attitude because that's what God loves. Those are the things he truly values. Thirdly, we should care about other people. The Nazarene Jews, they apparently were very selfish in their attitude when it came to hearing about Jesus' miracles or to seeing Jesus' miracles. They were only interested in proof. If you're, the, if you're the Messiah, you're this great teacher, this great man of God, if you really are God in the flesh, prove it. And Jesus told them they would say that to him in Luke 4.23 in that account. He, says, he, say, he said unto them, You shall surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have done, heard done in Capernaum, do here also in thy country. They just wanted to see proof. Prove it. They didn't care about the people receiving the, the miracles, receiving the healing. They were so selfish because they wanted proof for themselves. That seems to be the sentiment. Maybe they were just so envious. Maybe they felt uh, second rate because he was doing these miracles in all these other places, but he wasn't doing anything special in our town. The centurion, on the other hand, he wasn't even asking for anything from Christ, for his own well-being. He wasn't asking for proof that he was the Christ. He wasn't asking uh, for some great, special, this mighty thing to, to be done so that all could witness or that it could be seen that Jesus did that for him. He wanted Christ to heal his servant. That's it. Very simple request. Not for proof that the, of, of Christ being the Messiah, but because he genuinely cared and loved this servant that was sick. How can we see anything other than the great example of Christ's love and the centurion's attitude toward his servant? Christ had such great love for us, unworthy sinners, that he lowered himself from the status of God to become a human. And, and not only that, he didn't come and he wasn't some mighty political figure or this wealthy king. He came to be a servant, and he came to serve our greatest need. And he didn't do this for his own well-being, but for our own well-being. He did this for us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Paul is writing to the Philippians and saying, Care about other people more than you care about yourself. In lowliness, esteem other people as better than you are. Look not unto every man of, on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. 
Don't be so concerned and so self-consumed, but be concerned about other people's needs. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who took, who rather, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. That's a big deal. God himself to be lowered down to the status of a mere human being. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's the extent. That's how far out of his way God was willing to go to help us. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, it says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. Take this burden upon yourself to care for other people, just like this Roman centurion did. And let's not be like those Nazarene Jews who are heart, heartless and, and heart of heart, rather. Finally, we should be people that, that are not only understanding of our unworthy nature and the sins in our lives and have humility and care about other people, we should honor Christ's authority. The Nazarene Jews questioned Jesus' authority, and they rejected his authority, rather. Excuse me. And they did not believe his words that he was the Christ. From whence has this man these things? What gives this man the right to come and teach us and to claim that he's the Messiah? On the other hand, the Roman centurion understood and respected Christ's authority. He says, look, I am also a man that is set under authority, and I know that if you say it, it'll be so. He knew and trusted the, the authority that Jesus had. Give the order, and I know that it will happen. What a contrast. And if we ourselves truly honor Christ's authority and call him Lord, we will obey his commandments. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 44 through 49, Every tree is known by his own fruit. And that's an apparent truth that we can see. If we look outside and we saw a tree and it had apples on it, we would say, that's an apple tree. Or if it had oranges on it, that's an orange tree or a peach tree or whatever. Every tree is known by his fruit. For of thorns, men do not gather figs. Or of a bramble bush, gather they grapes. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? What a strong question. Why would we dare call Christ our Lord if we're not going to obey him? If there's goodness in our heart and we want to be humble servants of the king, then we are going, that's going to be the outcome. We are going to have obedience in our lives. But if we're not, then we're going to have disobedience. Jesus made this simple statement in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. It's a very poignant verse, and it probably strikes all of us. This is a litmus test for if we love Christ or not. 
if we say we are followers of Christ, if we say that we love Christ, then we ought to keep his commandments. And the inverse is true. If we choose to reject the commandments of God and reject his authority, well, what right does this, what right does the New Testament have to guide my life? What right does Jesus have to say what I should do and what I should be? If that's the attitude we take and we don't obey his commandments, then that says we don't love Christ. As we read of these accounts and we see this contrast between the unbelieving Jews at Nazareth and the faithful centurion there in Capernaum, have you thought about yourself? Have you considered your own life? Put yourselves in one of these scenarios and ask yourself, is Jesus looking at you marveling because of your lack of faith? Because of your rejection of Him as the Lord and Savior? Or is He marveling at your life as someone that is genuinely and humbly seeking to love Him and to follow His commandments? You can cause Jesus to marvel by your actions and your attitude and your faith or your lack of faith. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. To receive new sermons each week, subscribe on Google Play Music, iTunes, Spotify, and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and God bless.